as I consider those periods of waiting, those are the periods where I have struggled the most. They're the periods of time where my faith has really been challenged um, and fallen short sometimes because they're the periods where I have felt like God was silent to me. But it's really hard not to see that it was in those periods of total powerlessness for me that God was working. He was at work in my life in the waiting as much as he was at work in the happening. I mean, he wasn't asleep at the wheel. He hadn't forgotten about me. He was working for me the whole time. Welcome to the Storytellers Live podcast, where everyday women share stories of hope found in Jesus. I'm Robin, and I am here with Katie and Lindy, and we are your podcast hosts. Y'all, we're so excited about today's story. It is from our Vestavia gathering, which many of you may know was our original community that started Storytellers. And if you've listened to podcasts over the past summer, you knew that it was time for Katie, Lindy, and I, and several others to step away from the Vestavia team. And in that time, a brand new team has formed. They are amazing. And this was their very first gathering. So in a way, it felt like a brand new city. So they had Anna Galano share. She was fantastic. Katie and I got to be there. And you are in for a real treat in hearing her story. Oh, my goodness. I loved every aspect of Anna's story. You're going to be educated, first of all, yeah. on on just seeing life from the perspective of someone who does have a disability. She talks about the disease that she was born with, brittle bone disease, and she talks about the challenges of that disease, but she is so humorous, first yeah. of all. Just some of her stories were so funny, but really the main point of her story is learning how to trust God in the waiting. When you don't feel like he's working, he is, and she is going to encourage you today. So here she is. Before Anna's story, we do have two quick reminders for you. The first is, if you have not taken the time to rate and review Storytellers Live podcast, you can simply do that right now, wherever you're listening. Just write a review. It helps people find us in the podcast world with the algorithms that are out there, rating us and reviewing us. And reviewing us just simply means tell us how the podcast is speaking to you tell listeners what you enjoy about Storytellers Live, but it really helps other people find us. And therefore, more women would hear stories of hope found in Jesus. The second reminder today is that if you are in the Birmingham area, it is time once again for our annual Stories of Hope Luncheon. And that is scheduled for March the 15th here in Vestavia. And all the details are on our website at storytellerslive.org. Please go there, get information. And also, if you're not signed up for our newsletter, go ahead and register so that you can just get our weekly email that tells what is on the podcast for that week and then also gives important information like the Stories of Hope Luncheon. We would love to see you there. So please join us on March the 15th at our Stories of Hope Luncheon. Here's Anna. I see a lot of familiar faces in the room and that's that's awesome. I mean, I'm I'm so happy to be here today. I am um, especially happy to get out of the house because I had surgery four weeks ago today and haven't had the occasion to leave the house very often lately. So it's really nice to be out. For those I don't know, I'm Anna Galano. I'm 42. I'm a lawyer. I'm married to a lawyer. Uh, We live here in Vestavia. We have two kids. Our son, Luke, is 10, and our daughter, Charlie, is 7. I grew up here, 
and I attend the same church now that I attended when I was a kid, which is such a gift. We were really active with our church when I was growing up, and we continue to be active in the church now, and it's a total blessing to get to raise my kids in the same church that that raised me. I have osteogenesis imperfecta, or OI for short. Um, It's also called brittle bone disease because one of the hallmarks of the disease are bones that break really easily. And to give you some idea of what that means for me, I've had well over 200 breaks uh, in my lifetime. And I know that that sounds absolutely crazy, but actually that's a really conservative estimate. We are confident the number is well north of of 200. Um, It is not uncommon for me to go in for a checkup and have x-rays and we'll discover breaks I didn't even realize that I had. With all those breaks, with all the surgeries I've had, with all of the just the pain that accompanies all of that, it's not always possible for me to pinpoint exactly when and where I've broken a bone. So it's it's really not an uncommon occurrence um, for me, and, and 200 is really a pretty conservative estimate. My bone disease is a genetic disease, but it doesn't run in my family. So in my case, it's called a spontaneous mutation that resulted in my having the bone disease when no one else in my family has it. Um, it also makes me very short. So I'm four foot three. And I think God has a sense of humor because I was born into a family of tall people. Um, my parents are tall. My sister-in-law is tall. Um, I, I have one sibling. I have an older brother who is more than two feet taller than I am. So, you know, just genetics are hilarious sometimes. Pretty small chance of this uh, disease occurring when, you know, there's no history of it in a family. So it's pretty, pretty rare thing for me to get it and no reason for my parents to expect that their child would have it. And when I was born in 1980, the doctors were not just brimming with hope for my parents. They gave them a pretty, painted a pretty grim picture for my parents. They initially told them that I wouldn't survive. And then that I would never walk, never live independently. The list of nevers was just really, really long. Uh, back then, the the common wisdom, what parent, what doctors told parents of kids with OI was, put your kid on a pillow, literally, like carry your kid on a pillow, and avoid breaks at all costs. And so most families with children with OI, that's what they did. It didn't take long, though, for my parents to realize that that was not going to be their approach. They are, they're people of faith. We come, both of my parents grew up believing and trusting in God, and they knew that they were going to have to trust him with me. And so their thought was that if they could keep me mobile, if they could work to keep me as mobile as I could be, that I would get stronger, and then as a result, I'd be more independent. And that's what they were really working toward, was independence for me. 
But that was really tough because I really was very fragile. I broke my arms and legs just routinely as an infant, just moving in my crib. My mom tells me that it took two people to change a diaper because she couldn't just grab my legs and, you know, change the diaper. It took, she had to have someone very, very, very gently lift me up. I couldn't wear normal clothes because if my mom tried to put my arms into a shirt, my arms would break. And I remember dozens, there were all these fractures happened all the time when I was growing up, just from the silliest little things. Like I sneezed really hard one time and broke a vertebra in my back. I would break my arms rolling in my sleep. And I I remember breaking my femur when I was like three or four, bending down to pick up a coloring book that I dropped. It just... These major injuries would occur all the time when I didn't really do anything just other than just basically live my life. I was in a cast more often than I was out of one. And it's, it's funny, a lot of you grew up with me and remember this. I was, because of that, I used a wheelchair a lot when I was growing up and I hated I hated being in the wheelchair. I'm in the wheelchair now, and I don't feel the same way about it. Now it's like a tool for independence. But when I was a kid, oh, I hated being in the wheelchair because I felt like people talked over me and not to me. I just felt like people sort of dismissed me when I was in the wheelchair. And oh, I hate to be dismissed. (laughs) I like to be part of the conversation. So after every break, after every surgery, there were lots of breaks and lots of surgeries, but after every one, our goal as a family was always to get me back to to trying to walk. And I would walk with two crutches for the most part. But life occurred in this cycle. It was this break a bone, wait for it to heal, break another bone, wait for it to heal, break another bone. And it just continued you know, again and again. Uh, Now, kids are perceptive, and they pick up on how adults react to them. Uh, And I think kids with disabilities are probably even more perceptive in this way. I saw how people reacted to me, especially when I was in the wheelchair. And it was almost always, oh, bless your heart. Um, If I heard it once, I heard it a thousand times. And if people didn't actually say that, then it's what their face communicated to me when they saw me. What that communicated to me, I mean, I don't think people meant to, to say it, but what that communicated to me was that my situation was something they felt sorry for, something that they pitied. Um, it was really clear when people would say things like, Oh my goodness, I am just so impressed with you that you, you know, you even get out of bed in the morning. If I were you, I just wouldn't get out of bed. And I remember thinking, you just lay in bed all day? Like, how how would that work? But, you know, like, when you're a kid, you're trying to figure out who you are and, like, how you fit in, how people perceive you. And it's really easy when you are a kid with a disability to see when you encounter people everywhere you go who react in that way, 
it's really easy to feel like you are less than, you are lacking in some way. But the funny thing is I, I never felt that way, ever. Um, the idea that I was lacking because I had a bone disease I was born with, um, it just didn't make sense to me. And it, it really did not match up to what I knew about God, what my parents enforced at home, what I learned at church. Um, what I knew of God was that we're all precious to him. We're made in his image. We're valued by him. And I somehow knew even way, way, way back, I knew that I was not just made to be somebody's worst case scenario. You know, I was more than the bad situation that other people could compare their situation to, to feel better about themselves. Um, I just felt like, I mean, even though in Vestavia, I didn't see anybody that looked like me. I felt like a total anomaly most of the time, but I also felt like the God that created me didn't value me less than anybody else. So, and I, and I think that's entirely because of the family that I had, that I, that I felt that way. I did not win the genetic lottery by any stretch, <laughs> but, but I totally hit the jackpot in terms of supportive families. And I, I felt that way even back then. I mean, my one sibling, my big brother, thought I was a total pain in the tail. But because I was. Um, was? Was, yeah, am. <laughs> she knows. But, but if anybody, like nobody could pick on me in his presence. And he cleared a path for me. And I genuinely do not think I could have made it through school without him kind of going before me. My parents, oh my goodness, I didn't think I would get like choked up at all. My parents were like unique. <laughs> They're very unique people. Um, <laughs> but they are, uh, they were the right parents for me because they had they had these like huge expectations for their kids and there was no reduction for me like the bar was set really high for my brother and it didn't get lowered for me just because I had extra challenges and if any parent of a kid with a disability asks me ever how can I best support my kid? I would say expect great things from them because my parents expected that of me. I was smart. I was capable. There was no excuse in their eyes for me not doing my best and acting the right way. And that extended to broken bones too. I mean, it's okay to have a pity party when you break your femur. I mean... When you're, when you're a teenager and, you know, you don't get to go to prom because you tripped in, on a candy wrapper or something and broke your femur, it's all right to be sad about that. But at some point in our house, the pity party had to stop. And I remember one night in particular, 
I don't remember what I broke, but we were in the emergency room and I was apparently being a total brat and whining about how life was not fair. My dad, I guess I was just being a little over the top and my dad just got so exasperated and he was like, we all have to play the hand we're dealt. We all have to do that. And you can't control the fact that your bones break. You can't, you have no control over that, but you can control how you react to it. And the way you're acting right now is not the way you're going to act going forward. And I remember thinking, geez, they're so mean. My parents are the worst. <laughs> it was tough love, but, but they were right. They knew that covering myself in self-pity wasn't going to get me anywhere. They knew I had to be resilient if I was ever going to be independent. And so that's what they pushed. When I grew up, as I grew up, I wanted to try things. I wanted to do what my friends were doing. I wanted to water ski at our lake house. I wanted to roller skate at my friend's birthday party. And my parents, you know, they knew those things were going to result in a broken bone. And they were hoping they gave me the freedom to make that choice about what I would do. I think they were hoping that I would learn to assess risk and, and sort of make the decisions like, okay, maybe it's not worth a broken arm to roller skate. Maybe it's not that awesome. I think I'm a really slow learner in that way because I was like, <laughs> totally worth it. Like, got to do it. <laughs> And there were, there were so many breaks from, like, decisions that maybe I should have made differently. And you'll see that trend continue as I keep talking. Um, but they were, it had to be hard for them. It had to be an impossible situation for them. I can't stand to see my kids hurt. And I think about my parents letting me go do these things where they know how it's going to end. And I'm sure it broke their hearts, but they let me do it. They knew that for me not to walk in fear all the time, they had to be strong. And so they had to put me in God's hands and, and let that be. And they did. Um, and I asked my parents one time, How'd you do that? You know, how were you able to do that? And my dad will always, I don't know where he heard this expression, but it's a ship is safe in harbor, but that's not what a ship is for. And it's like, that totally fits. That's how that was their philosophy as I was growing up. Um, and that confidence that I had, that really carried me through what probably would have been some tough years otherwise. I, when I was seven or eight, all I wanted in the world was to play girls softball in Vestavia because that was where it was at. Like, everybody played it. Martha played. Dana played. Like, uh, Melissa, did you play? Yeah. See, everybody played. And I wanted in on that. I wanted a trophy of my own. I wanted a jersey with my name on it. I didn't have any of those. I wanted that. I asked my parents if I could play, and I'm still to this day astounded that they said yes. But they did, and we had to work with the league to even figure out how that would even be possible because I walked on two crutches. And, you know, my softball career went about like you probably think it went. I um, That first season ended halfway through the season. I broke both of my legs trying to run to second base. 
and I was in a body cast for the rest of the summer. And then the second season, like same thing, not both legs, but one leg. And then the third season, same thing. But I loved it and I would not trade that experience for anything. And even now I look back on it and I don't remember, of course I remember like being in a hump on the, you know, a lump on the field with my legs broken, but I don't really remember the pain of those breaks. I remember feeling like as I'm, I remember walking to home plate feeling like, oh man, this is going over the fence. (laughs) Um, That confidence, right? Um, And I remember like thinking, hey, you know, I'm not really limited by this body that I have. Like I have to work harder than everybody else and I have to be creative sometimes, but I can hit a ball. I can get on base. I can contribute to a team. And the other thing that I figured out, and I'm like seven when this is happening, but the other thing I figured out is that the self-image that I projected people just accepted. So like I thought that I was strong and I was capable. And so nobody else doubted that I was. And I didn't have a team of girls that thought I was, you know, just a person with a disability. I mean, that I don't think they even saw that because that's not what I saw when I considered myself. Um, You know, that's that just that was that confidence that, you know, moved me and shaped me. Um, I'll skip ahead to, to college. <laughs> uh, that confidence, I mean, I had, sure, I had bullies at school every now and then. I had some tough times, but I actually think that I had a great time in school. School was great for me. And I don't really remember anybody at Vestavia you know, thinking I was like less than, I mean, I sort of felt like people saw me the way I saw myself, which was good. (laughs) Um, I went to, um, I went to Vanderbilt for undergrad and um, I had a rough start at Vandy. I was fresh out of the wheelchair. I had just had a surgery or a break or something. And I was on two crutches, and I was barely, barely moving on those two crutches, and I had heavy books, and my classes were far away from my dorm, and I wasn't exactly sure how I was gonna get to where I needed to go. I had no idea what I would do if I broke a bone, but I was like, oh, it's all gonna work itself out, but my first week at school, I was in the dorm, and I overheard some girls in the dorm making fun of me. They were making fun of the way I looked, the way I walked, and they said things like, I mean, how's she even going to get to class? Like, how's she going to make it here? This girl has no chance at this school. And I, I mean, those were my fears. Those were the things I was worried about. And I thought, oh my gosh, maybe they're right. But that only lasted a second because I was like, no, I don't think they're right. So I just kept kept going. And the second week of school, I attended a student activities fair. And it's, you know, it's where the different groups at school had little booths and you could walk around and sign up for things you were interested in. And I'm wandering through the fair and I spot these two super hot guys (laughs) standing at the rowing team table. (laughs) And I like right there, I was like, I'm going to be a rower. (laughs) 
And I, I thought, I was like, well, you know, I have really strong arms from, <laughs> from these crutches. And, you know, you don't really use your legs when you row. Um, that's not right. You do use your legs when you row. But, but I didn't know that. I, you know, we didn't have rowing at Vesavia, so I didn't know that. But I walked up to the table, and these guys spotted me, and they got really excited to see me. And, you know, confident as I was, I was like... But they... They were really pumped when I walked up, and they were like, you have to be on the team. And I was like, well, what do you know? I guess they can spot raw athleticism <laughs> when they see it. Uh, okay. So I signed up, and I, I show up for the first practice, and the boat is like out 20 feet out from the shore, and one of the hot guys is like, would you like me to help you get on the boat? And I'm like, yes, I would. <laughs> um and so he carries me out to the boat, and we walk past the seats in the boat where there are oars, and he plops me down at the back of the boat on this little bench seat that I didn't even notice, and I was like, well, wait a minute, whoa, uh, where is my oar? And he was like, you're a coxswain, you don't need an oar. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm a what? <laughs> and he was like, coxswain. And he explained that... On a rowing team, there is usually a coxswain who is usually a small person who is the coach of the team when they're on the water. The coxswain sits in the back of the boat. They control the rudder. They steer the boat. They issue commands to the rowers. They implement the race strategy while the team is on the water. Um, and since the coxswain is dead weight in the boat... They don't have an oar, um, and it's advantageous to have as your coxswain somebody who is small and really loud. <laughs> and I was like, thank you, God, I found my perfect sport. Um, I mean, what sport could possibly be made more for me? Um, my size was a huge advantage, huge. No other college freshman was 88 pounds and four foot one. Um, so they put me on the most competitive team, which at that time was the men's team. So I had eight men who couldn't do anything unless I told them to do it. And, it, and I fell in love with rowing. <laughs> Loved it. Did it all four years. Um, but those... Those men proved to be the biggest blessing for me because they became my best friends. I mean, they they carried my, they just, I didn't ask them to, but they just started showing up at my dorm and carrying my books to class. They, when I had breaks, they got me where I needed to go. I had one break with them. I was playing football with them, um, but I... I broke my femur and had to have a surgery and didn't think I would finish college on time, was going to have to defer my last semester, and they wouldn't have it. They drove to Birmingham, got me, drove me back to school, and took care of me for that entire last semester of school. And to this day, they are my very best friends. Every single one of them was in my wedding. The other crazy thing is that those mean girls 
were suddenly pretty nice to me because all these hot guys were hanging out with me. <laughs> Funny how that works. I will, I'm going to skip over law school. I escaped law school relatively unscathed, at least physically. When I graduated law school, I got what I thought was my dream job in Atlanta. I had, I was making great money. I had a bunch of friends. I bought a house. And I was in this rare period in my life where I wasn't, I was able to walk without crutches. And I hadn't had a major break in a really long time. Um, And it was just awesome. I was loving every minute of that. Looking back on it now, though, I realized that At that time, I wasn't really doing much to grow in my faith. I was going to church, but really more for the social aspect of it. And I wasn't really actively pursuing any kind of relationship with God. I was too busy enjoying the way that things were going. And then, of course, things fell apart. I was playing football with my friends on the beach again. Back to the good choices thing. Um, And I had another bad break and had to have an emergency surgery at the beach with a doctor who isn't that familiar with OI, which is never a good thing. And then I had to have another surgery a few months after that. And the surgeries left me in pretty bad shape. I was using the wheelchair full time. I couldn't put weight on my legs. And I had what's called a non-union fracture of my tibia right here. It's where um, you have a break, but the, the parts that are broken, just they don't knit together. They don't heal. I had a rod running through the tibia, like holding everything in place, but the the bone itself wouldn't heal. So the result was that anytime I tried to put weight on my leg, it just felt like a freshly broken leg. And it was so frustrating. Um, And I was just, all of this independence that I'd had just disappeared. I mean, my mom had to come stay with me for several weeks because I couldn't drive. I couldn't get myself to work, couldn't get groceries or anything. And I was so frustrated. And truth be told, I was pretty mad at God about that because I felt like I felt like I deserved better than that. I felt like I'd paid my dues and shouldn't have to go through that. I was like, okay, if this is like a character building thing, I should have enough character by now. I mean, <laughs> nobody needs this much character. And and I felt like did all those years of pain and surgeries and frustrations and setbacks, did those count for nothing? Like, can't I just enjoy what I worked really hard for? And there were other ways to that doubt and fear started creeping in. Um, it became a really low period for me. I was like 26 or 27, and all of my friends were getting married or or already were married or were about to get married. Most were starting their families by this point. I was single. I wasn't even dating anybody. And I thought, who would want to date me right now? Like, I'm going to die alone. This is awful. And at the same time, my doctor the one in Birmingham the one who had treated me since I was six weeks old, who really just very important person in my life. Um, He passed away after a really short battle with pancreatic cancer. 
And I just remember feeling adrift. You know, I was just really scared for my future and really doubtful about things, you know, how things would turn out for me. Yeah, I I just remember feeling like God had let me down. And my doctor in Atlanta told me that I was going to have to have surgery on that non-union fracture since it wouldn't heal on its own. And I was so fed up because I was like, no more surgeries. Like, I just don't want another surgery. Don't want to deal with this right now. And so I remember one night at my house in Atlanta, I was about to go to bed and I was just like angry praying to God. And I was like, all right, you can do miracles. Like you do them all the time. Like, why can't I have one? Like, I want you to heal my leg. I want to wake up tomorrow and my leg be healed. And I, and I was demanding that. And, and I remember going to sleep that night and thinking, all right, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and my leg is going to be healed. Well, you know, I woke up and my leg was not healed. And it wasn't healed the week after that, the month after that, even the year after that. And at that point, I was so frustrated. I felt like I was just screaming out to God and I was getting silence in return. And even worse, I felt like God was just totally asleep at the wheel at this period in what should have been, you know, where he should have been active in my life. I felt like he was just not. But I was tired of being kind of down in the dumps. And so I knew that I needed to do something to shift my own perspective. So I decided to set a goal for myself. And I I knew it needed to be something big. I knew it needed to be something that would be hard for anybody to do. So I decided to climb a mountain. (laughs) And I knew nothing about mountains. And so I had to just do some research. And I learned about Mount Kilimanjaro. And how even though it's a really big mountain, it's, it's not like Everest. Like you don't have to be a professional climber to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. You, can, you just have to be in good shape physically and able to tolerate high altitude. And I was like, all right, that's my mountain. And so I told my parents I was going to climb the mountain. And um, they were both like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And my dad, my dad said, okay, when do we leave? And I was like, well, I didn't invite you. <laughs> <laughs> and and he said, well, you know, if you're going to go climb a mountain, I'm going to do it with you. So it was, it was on at that point. I mean, all I needed was a goal. And I had that goal. And so I started working towards that. And I started doing my PT. I couldn't walk, couldn't put weight on my legs, but I could swim. So I swam like fish. And then I got to where I could walk and... You know, over the course of the next three years, I got stronger and stronger and stronger, and I was, you know, ready for the climb. The economy was bad. This was back in like 2008, 2009, and my job in Atlanta was not going well. So I knew I needed to make a change. So I switched law firms and I moved to Birmingham. Um, the law firm that I joined was opening a Birmingham office. And so I thought, and the, and the managing partner, called me and said, hey, I want you to come work for me. And so I thought, okay, I can do that. I'll, I'll go to Birmingham for a couple of years, and then I'll probably go back to Atlanta. But so I made the move to Birmingham, and it was great because I could train with my dad for Kilimanjaro. 
But I wasn't licensed in Alabama. So I had to take the Alabama bar. And for the lawyers in the room, you know, you don't just like show up and take the bar exam. You got to study for that. And because especially if you're far out of law school, you, you've lost everything that you learned. So, and it was one of those things where if I didn't pass, I wasn't going to have my job. So it was a kind of a no fail situation. So there was my second goal. I had to now pass the bar and then climb Kilimanjaro. So I was studying for the bar exam one day at Barnes and Noble. And um, this guy next to me starts talking to me, striking up a conversation. And he said, oh, I'm a lawyer too. I recognize those study books. Good luck on the bar exam. And I said, yeah, this is my third time to take it. And he got this like terrible look on his face. And he's like, oh, well, he's like, maybe you'll pass it this time. And I was totally offended. I was like, uh, no, 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 no. I've passed it twice. Like, I'm licensed in Georgia and Tennessee. This is my third state to take it in. He's like, oh, sorry. But we, we got to talking, and it didn't take long for us to figure out we had an, a lot in common. He had just completed a through hike of the Appalachian Trail, which is a 2,100-mile hike. Um, he walked from Georgia to Maine. Um, and then he went and lived in Colorado and Utah and mountain biked for a while and lived out of his car like a nomad. And then he knew, but he was a lawyer. He knew he wanted to open his own law practice in Birmingham. And so he drove back home to Birmingham. And as he's entering the city limits, he's like in the mood for coffee and a book. So he drives straight to Barnes & Noble where he meets me. And I thought, curious timing. And I probably, as we were getting to know each other, I probably would have been, to, to be honest, I probably would have not been so forthcoming about my bone disease, my disability, all aspects of that. I probably would have made a bigger effort to try to pass as somebody who's able-bodied. But I wasn't really worried about this dude because I had some goals I had to achieve. And so I just, you know, was... 100% myself. And um, he was totally on board with what I was doing. He became my biggest fan um, for this Kilimanjaro climb. He did everything he could to help me prepare for it. And we knew I still had that non-union fracture that I was so angry about. Uh, three years later, still had it. And so I knew I was going to have to have surgery on that. And Honestly, I figured I would mess myself up in all kinds of ways on the mountain. So uh, we figured I would have a bunch of injuries that would require surgery um, because of the, the Kilimanjaro climb. So my plan was to just do the climb. And then when I was done with that, have all the surgeries I needed to have and, and just get them out of the way. So surprisingly, though, my dad and I did that climb and we made it to the summit and back without my breaking a single bone. Um, I didn't even have a blister um, after that trip. And when I went to my doctor's office after the climb to schedule the surgery for my fracture, they told me, that's weird, it's healed. And I thought, wow, that only took three years and it's <laughs> random how that happened, you know, because I'd been checking it over the three years. But somewhere in that few months before or immediately following the trip, it finally knit together. And I realized, I mean, I, I it's so clear to me now 
but it was not that clear, not so crystal clear to me then. But God had obviously answered that angry prayer of mine, but he didn't answer it in the way I wanted him to. I wanted him to snap his fingers and make it better. And he didn't, but he ended up giving me so much more than a healed tibia. I mean, that guy I met at the coffee shop is my husband. And the climb, oh my goodness, that Kilimanjaro climb was such a big deal to so many people. Not just, I mean, it was a big deal to me because it was a goal, but it was like, I can't tell you the number of people with OI who have reached out to say, that changed everything for me. And I was like, wow, you know, God gave me this platform to inspire people. And that's, I wasn't looking for that. I was selfishly just wanting to do something for myself. Um, and that job that I took in Birmingham was with a firm that I love. And I'm still with that firm 15 years later. Um, all those times that like, I felt like God was just totally asleep at the wheel. He wasn't, he was working. He was working through the, through me and in me and for me all that time that I felt like he was being silent. Now, I really wish that I could tell you that I have just increased in faith at a steady pace since that time and that I've never since had a period where fear and doubt crept in. Um, but that would not be true. Um, I am still working on trusting God with my life. That's a real challenge for me. Um, it's an even bigger challenge to trust God with the lives of my children. I had, um, I knew I wanted kids. Mark wanted kids. But our kids had a 50% chance of inheriting my bone disease. And just the thought of that just drove me crazy with worry. Um, and I spent so many nights just totally unable to sleep, consumed with anxiety about what's going to happen if our kid has OI. Mark, on the other hand, didn't worry about a thing. He is Johnny Sunshine and just never sees anything but the cup half full, always. And it can be really annoying sometimes <laughs> because when you're stressed or every, you know, worried about something you want somebody that's like oh yeah I, I I feel you you're not crazy but he was like it's fine he has this ability to give his worries to God and to not waste time being concerned about things he can't control and so through the the process of having our kids and through all the other things big and big and little he's been pointing me to God when I go off the deep end into worry. He's the one that'll say, no, 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 it's all fine. God's in control. He's got this. Our kids don't have OI, but if they did, I know that God would have, would have guided us. He would have provided for us like he did when I was growing up. Um, I want to close by sharing my favorite Bible verse, which is from um, Isaiah. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who wait in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. 
They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. I love that verse and I always have, um, which is kind of funny because I have no idea what it's like to run or to walk without being faint. Um, But I always loved the idea that these things that were impossible for me are possible with God. I always loved that. But what I learned from studying a little more about this passage is that it was given, these words were given to the Israelites while they were in exile. And what's incredible about it is that they received this message while they, they still had more exile to go. They still had a lot more that they had to endure. God was giving them comfort, but he, but probably, my guess, not in the way that they would have wanted to be comforted. He wasn't coming, swooping in and snapping his fingers and saying, everything's great now. Don't worry about a thing. Instead, he was reminding them that he had been their strength to that point and would be the source of their strength going forward. He was going to give them what they needed to endure so that they could ultimately see his promises fulfilled. And as I went through this this exercise of looking back at my life, I see so clearly how God has done the same thing for me. There, I still see the, the pattern of pain, healing, pain, healing. Um, and I still, and I see those, the periods of waiting stand out for me. The periods of waiting for a bone to heal, waiting to see if my kid's going to have OI, waiting like I'm doing right now, waiting to see if the surgery I had is going to be a good choice that's going to result in my walking again, or if I made a big mistake and I'm going to be in the wheelchair for a while. And it's so, and as I consider those periods of waiting, those are the periods where I have struggled the most. They're the periods of time where my faith has really been challenged um, and fallen short sometimes because they're the periods where I have felt like God was silent to me. But it's really hard not to see that it was in those periods of total powerlessness for me, that God was working. He was at work in my life in the waiting as much as he was at work in the happening. I mean, he wasn't asleep at the wheel. He hadn't forgotten about me. He was working for me the whole time. And I can see all the ways that he went before me and provided exactly what I needed. The parents that I have, the brother that I have, my crew guys who are my family, Um, the mountain climb that changed my life, the husband that makes me laugh and makes things fun, and the friends who stand in the gap for me when I need it. It is really difficult to explain to people because, you know, it's just a difficult thing for people to understand, but I really would not trade this life, this body for anybody else's. Now, I would occasionally like to go to Target or Publix without being, you know, caught in conversation about how short I am or (laughs) like, you know, sometimes anonymity would be nice. But I really wouldn't trade my situation with anybody else. And I say that knowing that I have some tough stuff coming. I mean, I'm in the middle of tough stuff right now. 
And I know that I'm going to have more breaks, more surgeries, more time in the wheelchair, more time waiting, more struggle, more pain. I I know that. But God didn't promise me that this life would be free from pain. And he didn't promise me that I would never struggle. What he promised is that he would walk with me through it and that he'd provide what I need. And he has fulfilled those promises. And I think I had it right when I was a little kid. God made me for so much more than just being a person with a disability. The person who, the the God who designed my life, designed my life to be more than something to make people feel better about their lives. I know that. I know that I have value to him. And I'm so grateful for that. It's shaped everything. Thanks for listening. You know, there were really three things that stuck out to me in Anna's story. The first one is what she said there at the very end is that God never promised us that we aren't going to have troubles, but he promised that he would be with us. And I love it when God layers his truth on us, because just two weeks ago in Mandy Trawick's story, she said that exact same thing after she walked through a divorce. So I I loved that she reiterated that. Um, The other thing that I really loved, of course, the whole concept of God is working in the waiting. How many of you are in a position in your life, I know I am, where I'm waiting on God to answer a prayer. And I'm like, are you working? Where are you? But that's when it comes back to, okay, Katie, where's your faith? Where's your trust? He is working even when you don't feel him Mm -hmm. working in the waiting. And then finally, you know, one of the things that, that I loved her saying, and this was at the end as well, is that every life has value. And it was just such a beautiful reminder to me for even even myself. Of course, we all beat ourselves up for silly little things that that we were born with or or that we struggle with insecurities. Mm -hmm. But for her to say, God created you the way you are and he doesn't Mm -hmm. make mistakes, just so powerful coming from her and just the challenges that she has faced growing up with this disease. Mm -hmm. I don't even know where to start in speaking to so much of her story because it's it's applicable to anything yeah. mm-hmm. you it, your attitude of why me you know our mm-hmm. if you've been a listener for a long time you know our scenario with our daughter who has walked a very similar road anna had a hip surgery four weeks ago yeah. that our daughter had two years ago mm-hmm. and i've been able to connect with her on this but to hear her perspective from a grown adult yeah that also helps us parent our children, Mm. even in minor things. Your child may not have had a lot of surgeries or have a physical disability, but your child's going to have a bad day. Your child's going to struggle. They're going to have difficult things. And I learned so much from her parents. Oh, my gosh. I learned so much (laughs) from her. Just Mm -hmm. when she said that her dad said, Anna, we cannot control the hand we've been dealt, but we can control the attitude that we have because of it. I mean, that was, she said it was tough love, but it was what I needed to hear. Isn't that interesting also talking about layering truths that a couple of weeks ago we were talking about our responses in relationships. We can't control how other people act, but we can control how we respond to them. And so again, just her parents' perspective I love that she used the the quote, a ship is safe in the harbor, but that's not what the ship 
is four. I was like, <laughs> wow. Let me rewind that, that one more yeah. time because I want to make sure I wrote it correctly. I have chills again yeah. hearing that. It um, absolutely is true. And Katie, you mentioned this working in the waiting. I have in huge letters on my notepad that she said, through it all, God was working in me and through me and for me. Mm-hmm. And that was just a promise that that I just want to remember and communicate with God on that. Lord, thank you mm-hmm. that you are working in me and through me and for me. Um, I, it really hit home. Yeah. And to go back to what you said at the beginning, Katie, where Anna ended, you know, was the promise that life is not easy, but that he is with us. And her honesty in struggling when she was in her 20s of this is not fair. Haven't I paid my dues? Yeah. Haven't I been through enough? Mm-hmm. Have Isn't my character strong enough? Haven't I built up? That's so easy for all of us Mm -hmm. to understand and whatever. I know I feel it personally right now. I felt that deep in my soul Mm -hmm. of hadn't we been through enough? Yeah. Yeah. Good gracious. Can we get a break? Yeah. And her perspective on that of God's, he's right there. And he doesn't promise that it'll be easy, but he does promise to be present. Yeah. Gosh, I loved her spunk. I mean, yes, <laughs> she did. And she, ta- she had such a positive outlook on life and a positive mm. attitude about everything. But I, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I kind of liked in her story where she did get raw and real of just like being mad and angry mm-hmm. at God. Why sure. is this what? happening? Because she was so positive throughout her story. I'm like, how are you not mad at God? And and she said that, you know, she struggled with that. But what I what I did love, and, and I know that there's probably somebody out there listening thinking, why is this happening to me? Why, God, are you allowing these things to happen to me? And I promise you, he is purposeful. I say it all the time. He's purposeful in the pain. And you will see his glory revealed. Mm -hmm. You might not see it next week, next month. It might be five years from now, but you will see it. So hold on to that. Mm -hmm. Well, y'all, thank you so much for listening. We know that you got as much out of this story as we did. Please share this with your friends and pass along. This is a story that everyone can benefit from no matter what you're going through and I know that I have listened and felt encouraged I know you have and so we're always so grateful when you share these stories of hope thank you for listening and next week we have a story from Erica Skidmore from our Auburn Opelika team on divorce marriage and ultimately God's love and so we will talk to you next week bye